Hello, everyone. Welcome to Big Bottles to Small Bottles. Joining me today, I have one of my good friends, Andrew. Andrew, how are you doing today? Hey, what's up, Vasily? So uh, today, I want to be talking about what it's like to be involved as a pharmacist in different professional organizations. I know you yourself are involved in quite a few, but I guess before we jump into that, would, do you want to give us like a little professional background where you went to school, residencies, and stuff like that? Sure. Um, I graduated from pharmacy school at uh, Northeast Ohio Medical University. Um, went on to residency in New York City, PGY1 at um, Kingsbrook Jewish, PGY2 at Mamandi's Medical Center, specializing in emergency medicine. Um, bounced around a little bit in New York, worked as an ICU uh, clinical manager at Bronx Lebanon for a year, managed a 26 uh, mixed bed medical ICU and a, a 13 bed surgical ICU. Um, went on after that to be the lead emergency medicine pharmacist at New York Presbyterian Cornell. Uh, after about a year and a half there, I was given the opportunity to start a PGY2 emergency medicine pharmacy residency program um, with Toro College of Pharmacy, uh, essentially bankrolling it at St. Barnabas Health uh, in the South Bronx. So I uh, started that program, got full a ASHP accreditation, um, graduated a couple residents there. And uh, after that, I met my wife and we decided it was best for us to get out of the city and move out to San Diego, where now I practice as an emergency medicine pharmacy specialist at Scripps Health in San Diego. Damn, that is quite an impressive resume. I guess, what is one of the things, when did you start to get involved in the professional organizations? Was it something you found in pharmacy school, during your residency, as a residency director? Uh, yeah, so I guess it probably did all start in uh, pharmacy school. So I was the... Um, you know, obviously, I was both an ASHP and ACCP, I guess not obviously, but um, my third year of pharmacy school, maybe it was my second year, I was the treasurer of our school's uh, SCCP chapter. Um, so that kind of uh, started to get me involved in, you know, professional leadership from that standpoint. And then during residency, you know, my residency program director always kind of made us, you know, get involved. Um, especially with the Royal uh, County's um, local ASHP chapter, which is New York City is like so big. So they split up New York City, Royals County, and then they have like Long Island, and they have like a Westchester chapter, um, but it's just a smaller chapter. So anyways, we had to go to those monthly meetings, um, you know, as residents, it was expected of us. And so that kind of plugged me into, you know, just staying involved with ASHP. Um, and then after residency, it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, when I was at Cornell, I applied for a position on the section advisory group of the clinical specialists and scientists, uh, which is a good way to get your foot in the door if you're looking to get involved with ASHP, you know, at like an advocacy level for your, your subsect of pharmacy practice, if you will. So those section advisory groups, um, you know, you can have one for every specialty, right? So we have like infectious disease and Emergency medicine is a pretty involved one. So the emergency medicine SAG uh, kind of runs like the ASHP, like emergency medicine Twitter. Uh, we put out podcasts. Um, if ASHP wants to publish like a physician paper on emergency medicine pharmacy practice, we put that out a couple years ago. Um, they run the uh, emergency care resources on the ASHP site, which they took over from University of Rochester a couple years ago. Um, and it's just a good way to, you know, kind of network with 
younger, motivated professionals, and you can sit on it for one year. I've been on it for six, and I just stepped down this past year. Um, and then, you know, I just was given the opportunity to apply for the ACCP PRN chair elect position last year, ran, got it, um, and have been putting together programming for the upcoming global conference here at ACCP. And, uh, you know, I've always been like also very involved with like local advocacy efforts from a legislative standpoint. That was something New York kind of instilled in me. Uh, our New York um, Royal or the New York City chapter of ASHP had uh, like a legislative subcommittee. And we would go and meet with our representatives, you know, two, three, four times a year to kind of try and t advocate for pharmacy practice, if you will, uh, on special like specific issues. And so we would meet with them and talk with them and kind of share our side of the story about, you know, getting New York pharmacists to be able to um, immunize like all CDC recommended immunizations. They weren't allowed to do that in New York. Um, getting technicians licensed so that there's some kind of accountability and standard across, um, you know, the profession. Um, and so that's how I got involved with, uh, I'm currently the president-elect of the San Diego Society of Health System Pharmacists. And I'll be transitioning into the president role next year. So once you start to get involved in this stuff, it really just starts to snowball and everybody, you know, wants you to uh, do a little bit more, do a little bit more. Yeah, and it sounds like you kind of went, um, I would argue, kind of a non-traditional path jumping into, well, I guess you were you were plugged into your local, your local uh, chapter as a resident, but it sounds like you picked up your first roles at the national level for ASHP and ACCP before you um, came to San Diego, and now you're very involved with the San Diego local chapter. But I guess uh, for somebody who's kind of looking just to kind of get their feet wet and see what it feels like to be involved in some of these, where would you recommend starting? Would you recommend just going to the local meetings first or trying to get a position at the local level first and then going to national or, or what do you think is best? Um, I would definitely like, if you're not a hundred percent sure that you want to commit like a, a large chunk of your time to this, because, you know, invariably some of these like more formal leadership positions, like board member committees, like president elect, treasurer, secretary, that type of stuff uh, entails a little bit more time than, than some of the other like subcommittee work. And so I would urge people like if they're not 100% sure that they want to really jump in with both feet to just try and uh, not only get involved in a subcommittee on like maybe a local level, um, but you know, maybe consider like leading a subcommittee. Um, so essentially, you would just be in charge of, let's say, like membership recruitment or, uh, you know, legislative efforts or social events or, or something along those lines at a local level. And it's a, it's a little bit easier to manage those, those smaller projects because essentially you just have one task that you're, you're trying to work through the entire year, um, you know, versus some of these leadership positions you're trying to orchestrate, a, you know, larger national meetings or, or meet and greets. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, politics and paperwork that goes along with those, those larger national organizations. Yeah, definitely. I could see how if you sign up for a national position, you definitely are committing yourself um, both in name and reputation as well as committing your time. Yeah, how much definitely one of the biggest things, you know, like if you are going to say you're going to do something on one of these big national like committees, let's say the section advisory group or ACCP, and then you, you kind of fail to deliver. I mean, you, you're just reflecting poorly on yourself as a professional. And, you know, I think we all want to and put our best foot forward, especially not only in professional organizations, but with our colleagues. So 
definitely don't overcommit to something if you're not sure that you can really put forth your best product. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it sounds like you have signed up for, sounds like you have a pretty healthy involvement uh, for both ACCP, ASHP, and at the local level. How do you kind of juggle all of your tasks? I guess what type, what, how much time outside of work would you say you spend in a given month um, for each of these committees? You know, specifically for the leadership positions, it's the, the, I guess the work kind of ebbs and flows, if you will. So for ACCP as the chair elect, essentially I'm responsible for uh, leading the programming committee for the national uh, meeting. So at ACCP Global Conference here in October, um, each, you know, um, section or PRN, Practice Research Network, if you will, um, they have obviously their, their, their annual meeting uh, where they have usually like an hour-long CE, plus they have their business meeting where they talk about, you know, all the uh, awards and grants that they're giving out as a section. And so, you know, we're putting, we basically had to put together proposals, find topics, you know, uh, pull the PRN, what they're interested in. We had to find speakers. Uh, we had to go through, you know, five, six, you know, seven revisions of this proposal as it goes back and forth from us and ACCP. And, you know, initially you get a lot of help from your subcommittee, but when it gets down to like the nitty gritty, like, uh, you know, oh, could you find citations for this author on this topic? So we know that they're an expert in this field. Like, you're not going to bother the whole subcommittee with that kind of like media work. So you're going to work through it. But, it's, you know, essentially the majority of my work for ACCP this year uh, happens in, you know, essentially the first half of the year. So I'm mo our proposal is pretty much completed now. Um, and we're just waiting. Uh, to get confirmation of our speakers in October. Um, and then, you know, next year as the president, I'll be responsible for other subcommittees uh, as I transition into that role. Um, so, and it works with that way with most organizations. I would say the same for my ASHP section advisory group. Um, you know, I sat on multiple different things. Like when I was on the podcast committee for two years, I chaired that. Um, you know, you had to put out a podcast every month. So you do a bunch of work to put together these podcast documents for ASHP. Uh, you you get the speakers and then you're done for the rest of the month. So that, that's pretty much that. And you can record them ahead of time. So you can just like, you know, bang out like three, four, five, and then you could just like rest and digest for the next, you know, five months. Um, so a lot of the work is like that. But, you know, beyond just like when you start to get involved in these committees, like ASHP and ACCP are going to ask you to do like other things, right? So uh, just because I was on the ASHP section advisory group, I was given the opportunity to like prepare the board certification for emergency medicine pharmacists, uh, the ASHP, ACCP, like joint uh, review course that's going to be releasing this fall. Um, you know, so that's like you're putting together, you know, a 30-page workbook plus an hour-long presentation plus recording the presentation. And, uh, you know, that was probably for me like a solid like 75, 80 hours worth of work. Um, but to be able to put together a product like that, that, you know, pharmacists across the country are going to be able to use to review for their boards and prepare for their boards, is a good opportunity for me. So I didn't want to pass something like that up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think, I think it sounds like you kind of enjoy being involved in these organizations, both uh, because it's just flat out good experience, you know, to have these leadership skills, um, but also because it kind of puts you in positions um, maybe to get that next job. 
do you feel like any of your involvements kind of bolster your CV um, as you're trying to like advance through different positions in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it really depends on like what type of institution you work for, right? So where the hiring manager's priorities are, you know, and, and that even like varies by region. Like, for example, when I moved out here to California, I was very surprised at like the number of or the lack of engagement in, in like the local CSHP, ASHP chapters. You know, it's it's. Engagement is largely driven people in academia. Um, and there's like a large like student body involvement organi- like aspect of it. But there's not like many pharmacists that are, let's say, in their late 20s, early 30s, new grads, like people with energy that are going to put together, you know, a lot of things that are good for the profession um, that kind of have the energy to do that still. Versus New York, it was like a totally different bear. And maybe that's like a factor of, you know, COVID. It's really like kind of, I feel like, knocked a lot of people and their work-life balance, like, kind of like on their back feet. Um, But it just seems that, you know, regionally, there's definitely a a different set of priorities for, you know, people out here and there. And so I think historically it served me well uh you know especially when i was jumping around jobs in new york um you know i've changed it was like every two or three years um and since i've been out here you know i, I really haven't been looking for different opportunities but um, i do know that uh, when i did my job interview for this current role at scripts you know the hiring manager was very i guess impressive the first thing that she said was oh it's not often that I see somebody with your breadth of experience looking to change jobs like this. And, and so I'm, I think it potentially gave me a leg up. But again, I think regionally, like California hospitals probably don't put as much emphasis on, you know, professional involvement and engagement as, you know, maybe some of the, the East Coast uh, bigger cities do. Yeah, and can you uh, just paint a picture kind of about the disparity you see, like, let's just say for people listening, I went to a couple of SDSHP meetings. I felt like maybe there would be eight to 10 pharmacists, five or six of those would be uh, professors or involved in in a school of pharmacy somehow. Uh, The board, the president would show up. And then outside of that, maybe like three or four other pharmacists that weren't really involved um, in any school just kind of showing up because it's something they wanted to do. And then maybe like five or six students that were part of different student organizations um, trying to get plugged into the local chapter. Um, what, what, what did it look like in New York? So for our like New York City and um, Royals chapter, depending on like what chapter I was in, based off what region I was practicing in, Royals is like uh, like Queens, Brooklyn, like that type of area. Um, you know, I would say an average, you know, monthly meeting would have somewhere between not only like the boards and the subcommittee chairs. So let's say that's like you know ten, twelve people, but there'll probably be an additional. 12 to 15, you know, just members that were there looking to get involved, looking to go out for drinks afterwards, 
you know, just for that like social engagement and to really be involved in the organization at like a grassroots level. And so, you know, the, the other flip side of this is again, COVID may have like, you know, knocked all this on its head because who wants to log into a meeting and listen to board members drone about, you know, issues and subcommittee work and, and not have the, you know, the incentive of like going out networking and, you know, having dinner or drinks after, you know, a meeting, which was a pretty large aspect of you know, what we did, at least in New York. You know, just getting to know your colleagues on a more deeper, intimate level and being able to network. Yeah, being able to like know them as friends and not just coworkers. I think that's hugely important. And I don't know. I, I don't know if it's COVID. I'll say when I was uh, in pharmacy school, I hopped into a couple of uh, uh, Stockton meetings for the, um, it was SJ San Joaquin Pharmacist Association um, headed in Stockton. And it was before COVID, but it was pretty much the same vibes. So there would be like the board, all of whom were professors at UOP. And then outside of that, maybe like three or four pharmacists who uh, were not really connected to the school that were friends with people on the board and I guess like got roped into doing positions. So that's a that's an interesting point you bring up that disparity and maybe it is due to the fact that uh, it's a lack of networking. But I also wonder if it's due to just like I don't I don't know what the what the best way to say this is, but I feel like a lot of us uh, come out of residency and we're all just super exhausted after residency. Um, and we don't really have that, that drive to go out there and go be a part of these organizations just because we're so tired of residency and we're scared of basically what we were talking about earlier, getting looped in to work on these projects, um, that could take up, you know, quite a bit of time outside of work. I guess, do you have any like words of encouragement for people that maybe are feeling that fear? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I did residency like not so long ago. It was like nine years ago. And, uh, you know, after, you know, my first year and my second year, like I had a, no break after my residency either year, uh, just because New York City is mad expensive and they pay their residents pretty poorly generally. So um couldn't even afford to take like a two week break in between starting my new job if I wanted to continue to be able to afford rent. So I certainly feel like the the burnout aspect of like post-residency is a real thing. And even after these past two and a half years of COVID, if you were in a hard hit area, like, I mean, this past, it was tough. I mean, I was in New York city when a thousand people were dying every day and, you know, the city was on lockdown and we were loading bodies into like, you know, box trucks. It was terrible. Uh, and then I move out here to New York and you guys get your first real wave. And it's like, you know, just awful after awful. But, um, so certainly burnout, you know, may play into it. But again, I, I've always kind of tried to to practice in a way that's that's like I'm going to be, you know, as good as I can be, if you will, you know. And, and these opportunities and these leadership roles kind of allow me to do that. If I wasn't plugged into these, you know, professional organizations, whether it's the section advisory group or you know, heading up a subcommittee, you know, I wouldn't have the publishing opportunities that I've had. I wouldn't have the, these board review courses opportunities that I've been given. And that I probably, you know, would lead a more balanced work life, but I also wouldn't 
be pushing myself to be able to, you know, succeed in these areas as much as I have. So I always want to do my best work in everything I do, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, learning a new skill or, you know, getting my MBA so I can be a more effective leader. You know, I always want to do well, if you will, and, and do better than the average. Um, and that's something that I've always tried to achieve. And I think, you know, professional involvement in organizations provide you, you know, the, the framework to be able to, to build yourself up to that level if you want to achieve that level. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up about pushing yourself um, to be the best possible. And I definitely feel like being plugged in and giving those opportunities at the bare minimum helps you keep up with like just the new evidence that's coming out. That's one thing that I've realized um, kind of as being a new practitioner is once you graduate residency and you don't have preceptors, you know, kind of guiding you to look into different things, it can be quite difficult to keep up with new trends and new studies that are published and just kind of having something um, where you you can kill two birds with one stone and by that i mean like look into new look into the new data look at what's what's what do the new guidelines say and then create something like a a board review course um you're 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 doing both you're creating you're doing the work for the organization and you're also doing work for yourself just refreshing yourself on the information and reading the most up-to-date articles yeah and i mean and even beyond just you know that you're able to to network with people across the country that are of similar, you know, age, you know, profession as you, you, you develop those networks that could provide you, you know, future like job opportunities, potentially, if that's what you're looking to do, um, you know, but you're also like giving back to the profession and you're really helping to shape essentially, you know, whatever your section of practice is. So like when I was given the opportunity to write like the ASHP, um, emergency uh, pharmacy services white paper like you know we're basically dictating what ashp says that you know emergency medicine pharmacists should be doing you know at, at a minimum and then what they should try to achieve to do you know at a maximum and um, you know just given that opportunity to to be able to drive your profession in a positive direction is is something that you know really can't you can't put a value on Yeah, I definitely agree. That was kind of one of the big things that I noticed in pharmacy school is like, how do you drive the profession forward? There's a good quote that um, one of my friends in high school, she ran cross country. And it's kind of like, uh, if you feel like you're speeding up, you're keeping pace. If you feel like you're keeping pace, you're slowing down. And if you feel like you're slowing down, you've already lost the race. And I feel like that's kind of something as pharmacists, uh, at least this always lingers in the back of my mind, it, like literally everything I do work um, when I when I do show up to professional meetings, like how can I contribute? But that's just like, how do we continue to drive the profession forward? Because we're in a very dynamic environment right now where healthcare is changing, you know, year to year, you know, the healthcare landscape can look entirely different. And how do we make sure that pharmacists and pharmacy always have a seat at the table and we always have contribution that we can make to a healthcare system that the healthcare system also sees as valuable because uh, pharmacists do add a lot of value. And that's kind of the reason of this podcast is just showcasing all the different ways pharmacists can add value to healthcare. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, nobody's going to do the work for you. So if, if you're not willing to like 
put your the rubber to the road, if you will. Like, you know, the next person's not going to do it either. The next person's not going to do it either. So, you know, sometimes you just have to to step up and meet with your your local representative and talk about you know issues affecting pharmacy practice in your region or in your state. Um, and you just you have to do it. Uh, otherwise, you're right. I mean, when when these consulting firms come into organizations, um, you know, that are looking to cut costs, if you will. The first, I mean, and I've been part of, like, I can't tell you how many um, I've, I've been part of, you know, the first thing these consulting firms will do is they'll go to the pharmacy department and say, your budget is way too big. I mean, look at all this money you're allocating to the pharmacy department. And sure, like, a large portion of that goes to, like, medication costs and drug acquisition and supply chain and, and all the regulatory requirements with sterile compounding, yada, yada. Um, but then they also look at like a pharmacist salary, which is, you know, a, a little bit lower, if not, you know, close to some physicians in internal medicine and family practice. And, you know, at the end of the day, pharmacists currently, unless you're working in ambulatory care, uh, really aren't generating revenue. And even if you are in ambulatory care, you're, you know, usually not generating, you know, um, enough revenue, you know, to commiserate your salary and benefits, if you will. So, um, you know, you, you really need to advocate for what you do. And again, if, if you're not going to do it, you know, there's 10 other people that aren't going to do it. So, What do you think are some ways that we can kind of shift the landscape so that pharmacists do add like monetary value? Um, like hard numbers. Cause I feel like that's one thing as like a pharmacist, um, it's very difficult to quantify our contributions, right? There's so many factors that are out of our control. Um, but that doesn't mean that what we bring to the table is worthless. So I guess, what are you, what are some ways, cause it sounds like you've spent some time thinking about this. What are some ways you think that pharmacists could bring value maybe it's just maybe let's just keep it simple and say monetary value to their healthcare organization sure i mean um there's a lot of opportunities and certainly depends on you know your healthcare institutions you know current practice and i i say that because you know i have you know been a leader in pharmacy departments where i tried to implement projects that i thought was going to help them save revenue um and i thought it was a great idea you know i thought i talked about this multiple times before, but um, back when emergency medicine implementation of um, discharge culture follow-up uh, started to become like a hot topic in probably like 2014, 2015, somewhere around there, uh, you know, I was at Cornell and I was like, yo, this is an amazing idea. And, uh, you know, I think we have the bandwidth as a team because we had 24-7 uh, coverage there and, you know, um, you know, we... I, essentially, I thought we had the time during our day to be able to provide this service to the institution. And the institution actually already had someone doing it, but that person essentially was always saying that, uh, you know, they, they had to call patients who were discharged from the emergency department from all abnormal lab. And so they were always complaining it was too much work for them, like they didn't have enough manpower. And so I went to the department chair and I said, hey, you know what, I think I have the bandwidth to at least do you know, culture follow-up, here's the data, you know, uh, pharmacists seem to do a, at least as effective, if not more effective job in, um, you know, maintaining uh, compliance with, uh, you know, district susceptibilities and allergy avoidance and, 
and risk factor mitigation or ADR mitigation. And uh, I said, I think we got this, you know. And he's like, oh, this is a great idea. I'm sure the, you know, the, the service that's currently calling the lab will be very happy about this. And so we had a meeting with them and I did not see this coming, but fought me tooth and nail uh, because they did not want essentially, they saw us as, you know, kind of invading in their space, taking their role, if you will. And, uh, you know, that was the time where I learned that you have to adapt to what your institution needs. So, you know, cost saving opportunities come up all the time. I mean, you can certainly talk about billing, uh, you know, in emergency medicine, pharmacy practice, there's people talking now like, oh, can we bill for these antimicrobial stewardship, like uh, culture follow-ups? Like we bill this as a telephone encounter, right? Because COVID has allowed us to start billing for uh, telephone encounters because telehealth is as good as in-person health according to these new COVID regulations. Um, so it, it provides you the opportunity to maybe bill that. And I don't think anybody's figured that out yet, but there are people trying to figure it out. Um, there's opportunities uh, with regards to, you know, just order set development management. So uh, one thing that um, yeah, I noticed working in the main pharmacy a couple weeks ago was, you know, we were essentially dispensing rabies immune globulin. And for those listening, rabies immune globulin, if you're not aware, is pretty darn expensive. Um, you know, somewhere on the threshold of a WAC cost of like $800 a vial. And so when our order set goes through for 20 units per kilo, you know, it, it just dispenses out 6.05 mLs. And so I look at this label, I'm like, yo, why don't we just round this down to six? This makes absolutely no sense. We're just going to burn an extra, you know, $800 for no reason on this patient alone. And then so we started running the numbers. And uh, it turns out we spend like close to like a quarter million dollars on rabies immune globulin every year. And so now we're, we're essentially optimizing, you know, specifically that order set to be able to do like a dose rounding to an even vial um, to save costs there. And so, you know, what if we save the hospital $20,000, $30,000 on that drug alone, that's great. But now let's like zoom out. Let's see like what other high cost drugs that we can like streamline with dose rounding to, to eliminate waste in that aspect. Um, you know, there's opportunities in every institution. I know some hospitals have problems with like formulary management and, you know, they let albuterol inhalers go out the door, you know, at $80 a pop. Um, you know, maybe you can convert those to NAPs. Uh, you know, uh, if you're using angiotensin 2 or, you know, one of those other, you know, high cost reversal agents like indexin at alpha, like, or why aren't you dose rounding your four factor PCC? Um, it really depends on like what your institutional practice is currently at, what you're able to do, and then you know also what the institution is going to allow you to do. If it's not a teaching institution, it's not really you know up to snuff on a lot of like the the clinical stuff, and they kind of practice like it uh, they've been practicing for the past thirty years. You know, you may not have as much leverage in a lot of those areas, um, but you really you have to take it on an institution institution basis. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Is knowing what you can and can't do within your institution. That's something that I'm kind of learning as I just transitioned kind of into my first new job outside of the system that I did my residency in, um, is definitely seeing like the difference in practice and taking what you did well at your old job or what you thought went well at your old job and how do we bring that to this new job or what does this new job do better than how we did things at my old job. Um, and then finding the difference in, you know, physician, you know, willingness to 
you know, buy into some of these cost-saving initiatives. Um, You bring up a lot of your involvement with emergency medicine, and that's clearly your passion. How much do you think kind of doing a PGY-2 directed you, or do you feel like doing a PGY-2 kind of directed you to be more involved at this level? Because, you know, for those that aren't familiar, uh, as pharmacists, our first year PGY-1 residency is just very, it's very general. Most of the time, it's you're in a hospital and you focus on a bunch of different things, internal medicine, emergency medicine, ICU, infectious disease. Um, And for people that have particular interests such as emergency medicine, ICU, infectious disease, uh, even ambulatory care now, um, they all offer a second year where you can really specialize and really focus in on only emergency medicine practice or only ICU practice and you don't have to worry about other practices of pharmacy. Um, How much do you think kind of honing in on emergency medicine opened the door for you to plug yourself into some of these organizations? Um, I would say for ASHP it did because my door to involvement there was through the section advisory group, right? So the section advisory group for clinical scientists and specialists, essentially there's one for each like subsect. And uh, yeah, there's an adult medicine one too, obviously. Um, But my door was through the EM one. Um, And I'm not sure if like, let's say the adult medicine is more competitive or less competitive to get into. Um, But I would say, you know, just because I you don't do a PGY-2 doesn't prohibit you from taking on these types of involvement or leadership roles. I would say probably the opposite. Uh, a lot of um, previous leaders, especially at the local San Diego chapter, the New York City chapters I was involved in, um, you know, many of them didn't do you know, second-year residencies, you know, the, the president-elect or the chair-elect, uh, if you will. And, and certainly a lot of the, the subcommittee leaders didn't do PGY2s. So I don't think they're, you know, one leads you to another. Maybe for ACCP, because the PRNs are a little bit more specialized. But again, there's an adult medicine PRN. So you could definitely get involved with that if that's like what your passion is. So, you know, both of my residency program directors were heavily involved with both ASHP and ACCP, so that probably instilled with me some sort of, uh, you know, motivation, moral compass, professional dedication, whatever you want to call it. Um, but again, if you're interested in taking on these leadership roles, I think there's plenty of doors to open uh, down the road that, you know, could lead you to either a new job or you know, like a new publishing opportunity or you know, a speaking opportunity at a national conference, you know, you can make a couple extra thousand dollars, even though the amount of work that you have to put into those darn presentations is uh, a lot less or a lot more work than what you're getting paid for. <laughs> uh, if you do it right, obviously, uh, you don't want to put forth a poor national platform. But um, yeah, again, I think if you want to get involved, you should do it. And there's definitely opportunities. And just because you're not a specialized pharmacist in a, a subspecialty area, doesn't mean that you can't get involved in the adult medicine or in total medicine, you know, areas of practice, if you will. 
There you go, everyone. There's Andrew's call to action. He's saying everybody should get out there and at least get involved at the local level or at the bare minimum, show up to the meetings and start networking with people. I think uh, you've definitely inspired me to try to get back out there and look into what's going on up here in NorCal in terms of pharmacist societies and pharmacist meetings that I could plug myself into. Uh, do you feel like there's anything uh, regarding kind of being a part of these organizations that we haven't touched in this meeting? I don't have as much experience with you and this is kind of all new to me, so I don't know what I don't know. Uh, do you feel like there's any other words of wisdom you could give people or examples of how you've contributed and kind of helped drive the profession forward? No, I mean, again, it's, uh, you know, if you want to get involved, I would say get involved and, and whatever your passion is, you, I mean, there's going to be an opportunity for you to leverage that. So, uh, you know, a lot of people probably don't know about like ASHP puts out like podcasts every single day or every single week. And yeah, they do. And that's driven by, uh, you know, the, the section advisory groups essentially. And so if, you like talking about, uh, you know, pharmacy or a specific area of practice, like you can lead up the podcast group, or if you're super into social media, like you can like head up their Twitter account. Uh, you know, it's not all, you know, putting together presentations, publishing papers, you know, kind of what we, I'm sure some people find it interesting, but it's not like totally my cup of tea all the time either. I certainly get tired of it. Um, and so there's opportunities to do you know, whatever you like to do in these organizations. And I, they're always looking for ideas to reach out and engage, you know, new members. Um, because unfortunately, as a profession, we're generally poorly uh, representative of our total collective profession in the nation, right? There's a lot of pharmacists that don't belong to any professional organization at all. Um, and to find ways to be able to reach out and bring those people in and you know, effectively uh, increase our, our legislative efforts and, and advocate for, you know, what is your degree and what you're able to do in your state or across the country, you know, is dictated by, you know, unfortunately money. Um, and so the only way that we can create a cohesive voice is to, you know, get, you know, all the people at the table, if you will, community pharmacists, hospital pharmacists, long-term care, ambulatory, whatever space you work in. Uh, pharma, uh, research, whatever it is, uh, you know, got to get more seats to the table and, and got to get more money in the hands of, unfortunately, the lobbyists, which dictates lawmaking in this country for better or worse. Um, and the sooner you realize that, the you know, hopefully the better off we'll be as a profession. Um, if one thing that, you know, we've done a very poor job of in the profession is we kind of bifurcated ourselves in these this retail versus hospital versus clinical pharmacist. And um, unfortunately, we, you know, created these subgroups where we have APHA, ASHP, ACCP, and we kind of divided ourselves and we don't have a single organization that we all belong to so that we can all have a voice as a profession to, to advocate for what we're allowed to do and what we can bill for and what our rights are as a profession and who regulates, you know, those laws and those rights as doctorates of pharmacy. So um, again, if your Twitter's your thing, if recording podcasts are your thing, if pounding out papers are your thing, uh, if going and getting drinks with friends is your thing, um, you know, there's always opportunities out there to kind of get engaged. So don't hesitate. 
<laughs> definitely sounds like any skill that you might have at home is a skill that can and will be beneficial in some regard to your local organization. All right, everybody. I appreciate you guys tuning into this episode, and we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks, Mathieu.